0: Father, we know your name, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the worthy name in all the earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Worthy is thy name. I'm going to preach this morning from the Gospel of Matthew. Once again, I'm going to ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 15 this morning. Matthew chapter 15, a second in a series. Tales of the gospel, there are many. Some of them take place within the gospel record, some in the book of Acts, some in the prophecies of the Old Testament. They all lead to one place. They lead to the good news that Jesus Christ is Lord in all the earth. And it isn't as though he came and didn't give great demonstrations of that fact, because he did, and we'll read about them this morning. Matthew chapter 15, I'm going to begin at verse 29. And I'm going to read through chapter 16, verse 4. So open to Matthew 15, 29 this morning with me. And so Matthew writes, and so Matthew writes, Jesus departed from there, skirted the Sea of Galilee, and went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, the blind, mute, maimed, and many others. And they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Now Jesus calls his disciples to himself, and he said, I have had compassion on the multitude, because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Then his disciples said to him, where could we get enough bread in the wilderness to fill such a great multitude? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few little fish. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and the fish and gave thanks and broke them and gave them to his disciples and the disciples gave to the multitude. So they all ate and were filled and they took up seven large baskets full of the fragments that were left. Now those who ate were 4,000 men besides the women and children. And he sent away the multitude, got into the boat, and came to the region of Magdala. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. And he answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be foul weather, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites! You know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. Father, in Jesus' name we pray that you would open the deep meaning of this your holy word to the saints this morning father and i pray you would give us discerning and wise hearts to approach this and to receive the deep truths written in it we pray in jesus name amen and so we see it's a great passage of scripture we see jesus in his element healing the master healing the masses feeding the master the masses rather and um what always amazed me about this, and it's not really part of my remarks this morning, but every time I read past it, um, it always amazes me, there were 4,000 men, assuming most of them had a wife with them, maybe a couple of kids, right? So just a huge multitude of people. They went out for three days. Whatever they brought with them had run out. Jesus knew they didn't have any food. He already healed them. He gave them their sight to the blind. He gave hearing to the deaf, speech to the mute, um, mobility to the to the lame and then he had compassion on them to feed them and how much food do you have well seven of these and a few of these right loaves and some fishes and what did he do everyone standing there knew that the 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 seven loaves and the few fish they didn't give a number in this case like they did with the five thousand right because he'd done this all before Everyone knew that, couldn't feed them. But what did Jesus do with the provision? He took the meager provision he had and gave thanks. Now, we always want a little more from the evangelist. We want Matthew to tell us, what happened in between? Did they watch it just multiply? But he doesn't give us all those you know, wonderful details that make for a good movie, right? Um, but he just said they handed them out. And so they, I, I picture it this way. They had a basket full of bread. And we already knew there were just a few loaves in there. I mean, how many could fit fit in a basket, right? And they gave it out here. It just didn't run out. And the same with the fish. And they not only ate, but they ate and were filled. He didn't come in and say, just take a little because there's not that much. That's what we have to do. Jesus doesn't have to do that. So I I, want to add that point in at the beginning. Give thanks for what you have because God can use it and multiply it in extraordinary ways. And I think we've seen this in our own lives. And I can testify, I've seen this many times in my own life. Pastor Ken used to say, Don't be afraid to give. You cannot outgive God. Right? And so then we read. I'm going to start with chapter 16, verse 1, because that's where I was going with this. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came. Now remember, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are a group united against Jesus. Remember I talked about triangulation? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. These two groups don't like each other, right? They're absolutely opposed to each other's doctrine. But they both sit on the great Sanhedrin In Jerusalem and run the temple complex and it is primarily run by the Sadducees which by today's standards are the liberal church they don't believe they virtually don't believe in anything I mean how can you believe in God and not believe in miracles right so I don't believe in that why believe in God if there's no eternal life they don't believe in any of these things and that's who was running religion in the land these are the protectors of religion in that day and the Pharisees were the legalists right They were the ones that, um, you know, Jesus healed the paralytic. Remember, they put the the man on the bed before him, and Jesus healed him. And he said, take up thy bed and walk. And so the guy's walking down the street with his bedroll, and the Pharisees arrested him for carrying his bed on the Sabbath. That's what they got out of the miracle, that Jesus helped a guy break the law. Not that God healed the man. But yet these two groups come together to oppose the Christ. And so the question seems altogether foolish. Show them a sign from heaven? Given the circumstances of the moment, he just healed the multitudes. He just fed the multitudes. And they say, give us a sign from heaven. And so we read, then great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame and the blind and the mute and the maimed and many others, and they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Why couldn't the Pharisees, who were scrupulously, meticulously all their lives searching for the Christ, why couldn't they glorify God by the mercy shown through his awesome prophet? But no. No. They needed something more. It's as if it wasn't enough to heal the nation's sick. Friends, by the thousands, I mean, I wonder how he did it. Did he j- they said they laid him at Jesus' feet. Well, obviously, it was more than just at his feet because there were so many. And they took their ill relatives with them out on a three-day journey into the wilderness, um, which just means out of the city, really. I don't know if you've ever been to places like the Middle East, but it's wilderness. And... Um, They laid him at the feet of Jesus, and he just walked by, presumably, and just healed them, or spoke a word, or invoked the Father's presence through the Holy Spirit, or something, but he just healed them. I mean, he could just say, let them be healed, and they would have been healed, but they were healed, and that's the point. As if that was not enough, he fed the thousands. He took the seven loaves and the fish and gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples and the fish uh, um, and the disciples gave to the multitude, and they all ate and were filled, and they took up seven large baskets full of the fragments that were left. Now those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And so the Pharisees come out, it's not enough, so they test the Lord. We have the word test here. Does everyone's Bible say test? Um, The word is pyrazo, pyrazo, The word is pyrazo. It's the same Greek word rendered tempt in chapter 4 of Matthew where Satan tempts Jesus. So Satan tempts Jesus. It's really the same word as the Pharisees testing Jesus. You see what I mean? They're giving him a test. They're checking out his stuff and seeing if he can possibly be who the masses are claiming he is. And so the word pyrazo the lexicon defines it with a number of different words here. Number one, um, the, the meanings can be to try. So they're trying him, like, like um, trying him in a trial, right? Um, attempt or assay. And number two, to test, to try, or to prove. Now the word assay, do you know what assay means? That strikes me as the correct word here, and I'll tell you why. When prospectors mined for gold, they had to bring their ore to the assayer's office in town. Do you know about that? Gold miners, they, they get these rocks. They don't look like gold yet. But if you're smart, you know what ore looks like. You bring the raw ore in, but the assayer has to put different chemicals on it to see how much gold is in there. Well, that's what they're doing to Jesus. They're assaying his purity, you see. So... They would subject the ore to certain tests to determine the amount of pure gold in the test piece. And that seems to me to be the emphasis here. They are assaying Jesus' purity. Is he of pure gold or is he a specimen mixed with other lesser materials? However, it was the obvious antagonism in the testers that Jesus reacted to. They were obviously taunting him. And that's what caused the Lord to burn with anger against them. The request of a sign to even be posed is proof that it is disingenuous. It was not a question, it was a taunt. It wasn't an inquiry, it was an inquisition. And I suppose the arrogance or the stupidity or the blindness of these taunters could be excused If they were not present for that raining down of stupendous miracles that had just occurred in the wilderness, maybe they just showed up. But you gotta know, friends, in the Middle East, at that time, there weren't any newspapers. You got your news through gossip. And I don't even say that in the bad sense, people spread the news. You've got maybe eight or 10,000 people here who saw this, these massive miracles happen. These Pharisees and Sadducees definitely know that if these things didn't happen, those people certainly thought they happened. And there had to be some there locally who they formerly were maimed and were now walking. They had no excuse for taunting Jesus in this way. It was total arrogance. There were some 4,000 men and thousands of women and children that were just healed and who would have been all clamoring with joy for their newfound health and wholeness. The same thousands would have been joyous and fulfilled after being fed in the wilderness where there was clearly no provision for food. And surely they would not have been silent about it. I don't give them any room for an excuse that they didn't know all the miracles he did already when they asked for this sign. Now, a wise man might justifiably be suspect of news of miraculous events. I am. When people tell me about miracles, I'm always a little suspect. And let me tell you something. I don't have to believe them. I can believe them if I judge them to be uh, worthy and ingenuous people, right? Right? I can believe them if I want to. It's not written in the word of God, so someone's claim is it's not incumbent upon me to believe it necessarily, right? So a wise man might justifiably suspect uh, news of the miraculous events um, if they came from one person or if they came from a, a group of people with a pol- obvious political agenda that want to claim certain things are happening, right? But for so many thousands of witnesses of such things, which we have to presume contained a few if not many who were beloved relatives of the skeptics who were posing the question and the challenge. And it resides not in the friends of Christ, friends, not in the formerly pitiable masses of now-blessed multitudes, but in the self-aggrandizing elitists who were the self-proclaimed protectors of, quote, true religion in the land. And so we have the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And all of the questions that they might have asked, they demand a sign from God. Friends, just as love covers a multitude of sins, so does bodily healing cover a multitude of doubts. Wouldn't you say, when they asked Bartimaeus, the blind man, who, uh, who healed you and where did his power come from? And he said, he healed me of lifelong blindness and you don't know where his power came from? You know, there's an old joke, and I remember the first time somebody told it to me, but it's about a religious man and his family whose house was swept away in a flood, and they found themselves stranded on the rooftop in a swirling deluge. You see this in the news now. You you see these houses floating down. I saw a house floating down a river in Germany the other day and and rammed into a, a bridge. Floods are just wicked and awesome acts of God. And so these people found themselves in that predicament, and they, they prayed that God would deliver them. And so a man came by in a boat and offered to take them to safety, and they said, no, we're praying, and we have faith that God will heal us. And so they declined, and another party of rec- rescues came in a larger vessel, and still they refused to go. No, we're people of faith. We've prayed. And so finally, a helicopter lowered its ladder over them and called out for them to climb up, and still they would not go up. And so due to their obstinance, they perished. And when they came into the presence of God, they asked why he didn't answer the prayer to save them. And he said, I sent you two boats and a helicopter, and you refused to be rescued. Surely this is the situation we have in the passage. Send us a sign. What are you talking about? This isn't enough? These clamoring masses? I mean, it's hard to imagine, but think of that many people. I mean, you couldn't fit them in here. Overwhelming. That's why he preached in the open air. There was no place big enough. The synagogues couldn't hold them. Peter's house in Capernaum couldn't hold them. I had to put a hole in the roof, remember? Drop the guy down. So we have to remember the type of religious figure we're dealing with here. They're Old Testament legalists. In the Old Testament, people ask for signs, right? They've appropriated the rights of some of the Old Testament figures. Remember Moses? Well, how how will Pharaoh know who sent me? And so God said to Moses, what's that in your hand? And he said, a staff. He said, throw it down. It became the cobra, remember? It became the snake. So he gave him that. So God gave him miracles to accomplish before him. Um, and remember the rod of Aaron, which turned into a snake? And the Egyptian magicians did likewise, producing snakes from their staffs. But Aaron's snake devoured their snakes. My snake's bigger than your snake. And, of course, who could forget the ten plagues that we used to convince Pharaoh of the authenticity of Moses' God? Right? So God sent signs. In in a legalistic sense, it wasn't unreasonable. Remember Gideon. He asked for a sign from heaven, right? First, the angel of the Lord appeared to him, and he put an offering on the altar, and it was consumed by fire from heaven. Go to Judges 6 for that. And, of course, there was the famous testing of the fleece. Remember the fleece? We say sometimes, I'm going to put out a fleece. I'm going to see what God wants me to do. i going to put out a fleece. Gideon asked God to ensure victory over their enemies by a sign. Because he said, my, my household is the least in all the tribe. We're the least. But God chose him. God chose the least. So he needed a sign. He, wasn't, he just didn't feel worthy enough to be called in the way that he was. And so he takes a fleece, which is a, um, well, I'm thinking a piece of wool, right? And he, he puts it on the threshing floor, which is outside, and said to God that if the fleece was dry in the morning and the ground was wet with dew, then he would know that God would have had to do that. And after the sign was accomplished, Gideon asked for a replay. And so out went the fleece, and this time it would be wet and the ground would be dry, and God did it again. And so it was, and so Gideon and his army were assured of their victory, and they went out with courage and conviction before the Lord and defeated their Midianite foes. Great story of conquest and God being involved in the revival of his people. And the list goes on. Elijah called down fire from heaven to authenticate the presence of the one true God. Do you remember that? It was a contest, friends. It's called a contest. It was a testing, right? Whose God is God was what this contest was all about. And I hope you notice this. When you're determining truth, the numbers don't matter. Polls and majority consensus are of no value in determining the truth. Athanasius, Athanasius, very famous uh, bishop, Um, it was present at the Council of Nicaea which was um, trying to nail down the doctrine of, uh, of the deity of Christ at one point in time had no one who stood with him in the beliefs that he had and someone said to him, Athanasius the whole world is against you and Athanasius said, well then I guess I'm against the whole world right? numbers don't matter when it comes to truth And so it was one saint, Elijah, against 450 idolaters. And the stakes were high, friends. The loser gets death. And so we read this from the book of Kings, 1 Kings. The fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust. And it licked up the water that was in the trench and when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down, down to the brook Kishon and executed them there. You know, signs came from heaven. King Ahaz, king of Judah, took another tack, though. This is a little bit different. And we read this from Isaiah. Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, ask a sign for yourself. God's telling the prophet, the king, ask me for a sign. I want to show my power for you. Ask a sign yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. And the Lord loved that right? And then we read this, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign that you haven't asked for. And what sign do you suppose he gave? Here's the sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. 750 years before that sign would be fulfilled, but he said it prophetically to the man he blessed with that knowledge. Now, what's extraordinary here is that not only would the Lord not be tested by his opponents, he'll graciously grant a sign to those he loves. Guys, admit it. You've asked for a sign. All right, let me do this another way. I admit I've asked for signs. Okay? You ever do this? <laughs> Tell me from your, from your word, Lord. Um, yeah, I've done that. It, it actually... Worked for me a couple of times, <laughs> I have to be honest with you. I can't recommend these things because it's not like a, you know, a, a, a program for it. But uh, uh. So he, he does grant signs to those he loves. It's, it's the opponent, it's the antagonism that so enrages the Lord. But in this case, the sign grant is, is not the one that Ahaz could receive in his time. But the Pharisee... This is what's interesting. The sign of Ahaz was not received in Ahaz's time. But wouldn't that be a great thing to know? That the Messiah will come conceived by a virgin. What an awesome miracle. And that's the sign. But when did the sign happen? In the lives of these Pharisees and Sadducees. That's when it actually happened, and they missed the sign of Ahaz. You know, I always wondered why someone there didn't say to them, uh, um, didn't you receive... Um, your sign that you seek is the sign of Ahaz. But I suppose the story of the virgin birth was scarcely known at the time. And this, of course, is not the first time, not even in Matthew's gospel, where the opponents of Jesus asked for a sign and received warning and wrath instead. You know, when you test the Lord, you receive warnings of his wrath. But when you love the Lord, you receive promises of his blessings. He does both. The Lord will not show himself or display his power to antagonists. He doesn't like that. He does not answer the fool according to his folly, and he tells us that neither should we. And so he said to them the first time, this, was, this, there was, this happened first in, in Matthew chapter 12, he said, to what shall I liken this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace And calling to their companions and saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned for you, and you did not lament. And the conclusion, friends, the Lord does not dance to your tune or my tune. And certainly doesn't dance to the tune called by his obvious opponents. He'll not perform for the sake of being inspected and approved by men. That's not why he'll do it. The good news of a healing savior in the land was, was only good news to some ears. Others saw the Lord as some sort of magician or entertainer seeking a name for himself. Remember Herod? Now I'm going back. This is Herod Antipas, the one who was at the trial of Jesus, and he's the one, he's the one who executed john the baptist so this is the son of herod the great who we'll also talk about but herod we read this from uh, the gospel of luke now when herod saw jesus he was exceedingly glad for he had desired for a long time to see him because he had heard many things about him and he hoped to see some miracle done by him oh great um the local prophet is here let's sit down with the other royalty and he can perform miracles in front of us what does he think this guy is Jesus doesn't perform like that on cue for royalty. And friends, we ask for signs, we ask for favors, we ask for blessings, and we've been invited to do it. But I hope we're not in this camp. I dearly hope that our faith is not a mere hope for favors or for gifts or for altering of circumstances. Indeed, the blessings of Christ surely contain these things in the measure that God determines for each one. But a true disciple loves the person of the Lord first and the power of the Lord second. We love him because he's worthy. Worthy is thy name, we're saying this morning, right? So Jesus goes on to note those who demand signs are not content with signs, obviously, right? And so he said, John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon, The son of man, or rather, I come eating and drinking and they say he's a glutton and a wine-bibber. You can't please the antagonist, friends. That's a fact of political strategy. The antagonist always has another test, another antagonism, another complaint, because you're not his guy. And so the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they said he's a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is justified by her children, he said. Matthew wrote this. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done. Friends, if mighty works have been done for you and you didn't see the glory of God in it, there's a warning here for you. He began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. They knew God was in their presence, and they stubbornly went on their their way. Woe to you, Chorazin, he said to one city. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. What's Tyre and Sidon? Non-Jewish cities, cities in Phoenicia today, Lebanon. And those cities, I believe, are still there. I'm looking at Joe for verification. He just came back from Lebanon. But um, yeah, I believe Tyre and Sidon, pagan cities of old. Friends, the friendly cities, the Jewish cities that the Lord came and displayed the power of God in, those who did not repent were in greater danger in the judgment than the pagan cities who had nothing to do with the Lord who were not so favorably treated. But I say to you, it'll be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And what about you, Capernaum? That's Peter's city, remember? We talked about it last week. What about you, Capernaum, who are are exalted to heaven? He did so many healings there. Right in Peter's ancestral home. You will be brought down to Hades. Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it has been more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Friends, Sodom is a city that was destroyed by fire and brimstone, going all the way back to Genesis, friends. But the places where God has showed his mercy, he holds to a higher standard of faith, friends, And he goes on, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered. They said, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Remember, this is the first time. This is in Matthew 12. But he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days, In three nights in the heart of the earth. And I think we all understand the impact and the meaning of what he's saying here. And he said, the men of Nineveh, that's the city Jonah came to preach to, right? The Assyrian city, modern day Iraq. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. Friends, let's not miss it. There it is, friends. The intended sign of the Savior is the preaching, friends. How do they know we're the church? Because we do the preaching. How do they know you're a believer? Because you do the preaching. Preaching is for repentance, friends. It is the sign for all generations. That's why the church must not be silenced. And the church must not be silent. Al Mola wrote a book I read some years ago on the beach in Naples. We must not be silent. In fact, I think it's we cannot be silent. We're the church. We have no right before God to be silent. All Christians must recognize the obvious signs of the times and preach with the urgency that the times demand. And so the Lord said this very thing to his detractors. And we read this from chapter 16, verses 2 through 4. And he said to them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, For the sky is red. And in the morning it'll be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites! You know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it, except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And so, what does the Lord do? Well, he appeals to an adage. You've heard the adage, right? Red sky at night, sailor's delight. Red sky in the morning, sailors take warning. Well, guess what? That, that adage goes back before the time of Jesus, only it went something like this. Red sky at night, shepherd's delight. Red sky in the morning, shepherd take warning. Found that in R.T. Francis' footnote. his commentaries here. I thought it was interesting. So what were the signs of their times? The Lord's not... Amused with our ability to predict the weather while at the same time ignoring the political climate. What was going on in the society of men at that time? Where's the discernment among them? Why are these so called protectors of religion the only ones that are, are forcing false religion on the population? How did they miss it? So, what were the signs of their time? Well, there was the virgin birth. That was a sign for some precious few, though. When you get right down to it, it was a few wise men. We don't know how many. We say traditionally three. I'm going to go with the Hallmark version on that. I'm going to say there was three wise men. Um, we don't know how many shepherds there were. I don't know, a dozen? I mean, I don't know. How many shepher- there wasn't all that many people who were there at the manger receiving the sign of the virgin birth, right? Some 30 years between miracles tended to, to diminish them anyway, right? Geez, I wonder if that's really what I saw. Remember when Peter raised Jairus' daughter? and People saw it and they were like, well, maybe she wasn't really dead. Maybe she was just sick. And you know, as time goes on, the force of the miracle tends to go away with it. People want sign after sign after sign. I would say that John the Baptist was the most significant sign of the times. He was that prophesied voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. I can't recommend the play, but I did like the song. But what happened to John? Well, he was canceled by his opponents. For what? Speaking the truth against the establishment. That's what happened to him. Truth tellers have always been derided and ridiculed and pointed out and punished. About Jesus we read, The whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation. Imagine, imagine dragging the Lord of glory into court and saying, yeah, we found this fellow perverting the nation. Picture bringing Jesus in in manacles and shackles and an orange jumpsuit, this fellow. And he forbid the people to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he is himself, the Christ, a king. Friends, the news media publishes lies with impunity in every oppressive society. He never said any such thing. It was a lie, friends, a damnable lie. So how's it done by the powers that be in in Cuba today? Well, people protest, and then what do they do? Shut down the Internet. You know, that's what they do to silence the masses. The Internet was supposed to be good and free and uh, uncensored. Not anymore. I've said it since the 90s. We don't live in the information age, friends. We live in the misinformation age. We are able to transmit lies and falsehoods faster than any time in history. And that's what's being done. As soon as truth makes its appearance, the long knives come out and somebody gets canceled and shut down and taken off or taken away. And in Cuba, they just disappear. And it's happening. What are the signs of the times? What color is the morning sky? It's red and threatening to truth-tellers. I think it is. It's always the same. First there's the attempt to ridicule and diminish the truth-teller. Then they're gagged, then removed. There's such temptation for the church to be silent. Where were the loving multitudes at Calvary? Did you ever wonder that? He came in a week before and they were all over him. They dragged him out in shame and shackles, and no one was there. I mean, a few of the close ones we read about. Where were they in the praetorium to call out for Jesus over Barabbas? Too few in number to make the difference, and no one wants to stand alone. It was demanded to Jesus to silence his followers. Remember this? As soon as they spoke truth, they said to him, silence your followers. The whole multitude of disciples began to began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. And they said, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to Jesus from the crowd and said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples for saying the truth. But he assured and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Boy, I would have loved to have heard that. Who are the stones? Where are the stones. So as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. And he said, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an encampment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground and they'll not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Where are these stones to cry out? Apostle Peter says, you're the living stones that make up the temple, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so we ask ourselves, what does the sky portend for us? What are the signs of the times? Where are the stones to cry out? Paul asked this question in his time to the Romans. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? It's a test. Do we believe? If we believe, we'll call out. How shall they believe in him in whom they've not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written... How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Don't expect your gospel-preaching feet to be beautiful to everyone, but they're beautiful to the Lord, and they're beautiful to other believers. It's morning in America, friends, and the sky is red. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, he went on to the Romans to say. And unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. Men who suppress the truth. God hates truth suppressors. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. You want to live by your passions? You may get what you asked for. Even their women, he said, exchange the natural use for what's against nature. Likewise the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit. It goes on and on. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are. Wrath promised of Christ to truth suppressors. And so the Lord said to his servant Asa, The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For a long time, Israel's been without the true God, without a teaching priest, he wrote, without law, But when in their trouble they turned to the Lord God of Israel and sought him, he was found by them. It wasn't too late. They turned away. For a long time Israel was without their God, he said. But when they came, it wasn't too late. And in those times there was no peace in the one who went out, nor to the one who who came in. But great turmoil was on all the inhabitants of the land. So nation was destroyed by nation and city by city. For God troubled them with every adversity. But you, saint, you, church, be strong and do not let your hands be weak, for your works shall be rewarded. And to the faithful oppressed, friends, friends to the church, on one hand the weather's always fair, or there's fair weather on the horizon. For a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. I will make your pinnacles of rubies, your gates of crystal, and all your walls of precious stone, and your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear and from terror, for it shall not come near you. Indeed, they shall surely assemble, but not because of me. Whoever assembles against you shall fall for your sake. Behold, I've created the blacksmith who blows the coals and the fire, who brings forth an instrument for his work, and I have created the spoiler to destroy, but no weapon formed against you shall prosper." This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. Amen. Father, in Jesus' name, let us trust in the promises. But do not let your church be blind to the sky, O Lord, and what is written in it for us. Father, in Jesus' name, give us eyes to see. Give me eyes to see and a voice to, to preach, O Lord. Let the people repent the preaching of your gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.